Hi, John. How are you today? Hi, Elliot. Really good. As I mentioned last week, we were getting ready for my son's wedding, and it went over very well on Saturday. Unfortunately, it was supposed to be an outdoors, and a monsoon came through. But once we made a plan B to go inside, it worked out really well, and happy to see friends and family. So it was a nice weekend. Great. I'm glad to hear that. And starting in the football season, we don't have to go over all the scores and all the events. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if one is a that. football fan, no matter who you rooted for, there was something to pay attention to. That's for sure. More to come as we go forward. I'm not ready to say, let's jump into college basketball season. Well, I'll give it a few more weeks before. I, I was going to totally... say, they're already practicing. No question. A couple things. We want to spend the lion's share of our time today on the State Department's implementation of the corruption strategy issued by the Biden administration, but a couple of other noteworthy items this week. The GAO, the Government Accountability Office, released a report where they estimated that fraudsters may have stolen as much as $135 billion, which basically that was one out of every $7 identified for jobless benefits was captured through fraud. And most of it has not been recovered. The Labor Department disputes the numbers. They think it's less. But the bottom line is I think everybody understands that there was major gaps in how this money was distributed. It's certainly the blame is bipartisan. Everybody wanted to get money out to folks so that they could help them during a pandemic that we hadn't seen in 100 years. But as our clients have said, they knew there was going to be a ton of fraud. And this certainly is one of the many evidences, if that's a word, of this. Just came out the other day. It's been reported in the main press, but thought we would just reference that. That was one thing. And the other thing, just real quick, Maxine Waters, who, as everybody knows, is the ranking member of House Financial Services, she sent a letter late last week to all the banking agencies and FinCEN as well as the Credit Union Administration, asking them to examine the CIP regulations, the mandates created right after the Patriot Act, dealing with the information that has to be captured to comply with the CIP rule. And her point is that because it includes full Social Security numbers, that's in today's world an, an additional risk for identity theft, for fraud, those areas as well. And she mentions in the letters only a couple of paragraphs, but she says she certainly understands why that's being captured to deal with identifying the customer so that you can do risk analysis and all of that. But she says it also can enhance the hacking that have occurred in the past few years. She cites the Equifax one back in 2017, where almost 147 million data points on individuals, their SSNs were exposed, Morgan Stanley, Flagstar, and others. And she indicates in the letter that in light of all this, why can't the financial sector be simply required to collect only the four digits of a customer's SSN when you're doing third-party identification? And she asks that they reconsider the FAQs for CIP, as well as a change to the exam manual and all of that. It's not co-signed by others. It's just simply from the ranking member Waters. But I thought we'd just highlight that as something out there. I'm sure there will be a response. At some point, she just sent the letter. I doubt they're going to make a major change at this point. But given the fact that we do talk about cybersecurity 
pretty frequently and technology has certainly changed in the 20 years since the rule has been issued, it certainly might be something that the agencies sit back and make a decision perhaps to alter or amend the rule. Um, always good to take a look and see whether things can be modernized. Uh, so be interesting to see how that unfolds. I also had one recently, FinCEN issued an alert on, and I'm quoting here, a prevalent virtual currency investment scam commonly known as pig butchering. It's a scam to get people to invest in virtual currencies and then not, and then lose all their money. We're going to be publishing a blog post about it over the next week or two, so you can watch for that. But worth taking a look at, like all of the FinCEN alerts can have some value as a training tool and an awareness tool. And it does include red flags, so there is some help there. But as you mentioned, the main thing we wanted to talk about today was the State Department issued their implementation plan of the U.S. strategy on countering corruption. The strategy itself came out at the end of 2021, and it's the first ever national strategy on countering corruption. I'm assuming that you saw the report, John? I did. And I think to remind folks, because we've talked about the strategy before, that the plan goes into the five pillars of the strategy. And those are to modernize and resource efforts to fight corruption, to curb illicit finance, hold corrupt actors accountable, preserve and strengthen the multilateral anti-corruption architecture, and improve diplomatic engagement and leveraging foreign assistance to advance these various policy goals. So they take all of those pillars and in it a whole series of subsets on how they would implement those plans. So yeah, it's it's an interesting, it's a 40-page document. It's from the State Department, as we talked about offline, but they do interact with a variety of agencies. So there are particular objectives and implementation. I'll just mention a couple quick ones, and then obviously want to hear what you have to say about these as well. If you look at the front end of this, they talk about enhancing research and data collection and analysis, because you can't fight corruption if you don't know what you're looking for, right? And so one of the things I thought was interesting uh, is... They're going to provide embassies with guidance on corruption analysis, diagnosis, and data usages to inform the assessments, the program design, diplomatic reporting. So if you give all these embassies in these various jurisdictions the tools, then I think that certainly helps with the research. So again, it's things like that in there. And then just collecting data for reporting on progress toward the goals. So some of these, they tell you the, the timelines are quick. I think they say short, medium to long, as things are ongoing. But I think it's a pretty interesting list of items. But the one in the front end made it jumped out at me. And there was another one just real quick, and that is back on communication to strengthen the State Department's anti-corruption public communication. And this, again, will sound simplistic, but I think it makes sense. Utilizing relevant social media, updating relevant web pages, broader public messaging, and conducting non-governmental partner consultations and public engagement activities. What the government and others have done with human trafficking, constantly pushing out information that people are aware of what happens when there's corruption, the impact that it has, maybe people will be more predisposed to, to reporting or doing some proactive identification. Yes. One that caught my eye was uh, update tools available to promote the accountability of corrupt actors at home and abroad. And this, particularly the abroad piece, had to do with, so one of the 
activities is to engage in targeted bilateral diplomatic interactions to improve utilization of foreign assistance focused on the demand side of bribery and other corruption offenses, and to work with DOJ and Treasury and other federal law enforcement in similar efforts. I I think there's a recognition that corruption, while on one hand can be a hyper-local problem, it more and more these days is truly a global problem where corruption in one place ends up having a connection to money laundering in another place or other bad acts in another place. And we need to focus local, but we also need to act globally. And of course, State Department is the place where we do that the most. So they are recognizing that they need to do it. And it's on a bilateral basis, not only bilateral. Sometimes it's going to be more multilateral, but certainly they focused on that. And I think that is important and critical. And corruption, staying with the multinational approach, FATF talks about corruption too, um, because their financial crime reviews and things are not strictly related to money laundering. So take a look at that. That report's obviously available on the State Department website. And I think it's always useful when these reports are posted to do a quick little summary for internal use, whether you're part of a trade association or for your institution, for your senior managers, and and maybe some editing from your perspective on how it might impact your particular institution or client base. Yes, and we'll link to the report and to the strategy in the description of this week's episode that appears on our website. So you'll be able to get to those pretty easily. John, what else do you have in the pipeline? Later this week, I'm going to be interviewing an investigative journalist. We're going to cover some of the stories that she's been reporting on. Also, she had a previous career move where she was working for groups that paid specific attention to AML-related topics. So we're going to get her take on all that. So that's coming up. Also, as I think I've mentioned in previous this week's in AML conversations, we have in the past, I teach a class at George Mason University at the Graduate School the Shah School of Policy on money laundering and terrorism. And when we have our final papers from the students, if a couple we deem publishable, we'll put them out on our website. Later this week, the first one of a couple by one of our students. And I think you're going to find it really fascinating. It's evaluating Norway's readiness and risk management related to the northern sea routes of Russia. So it deals with crime and corruption. I found it really both compelling and of such a fascinating angle. That'll go up later this week. And as I mentioned, again, I got to call that podcast with the investigative journalist. And we're working on obviously our webinars for October, but maybe you could tell us about Elliot, the September webinar. Yes. So we're doing uh, one focused on fraud and managing an anti-fraud program in the current working environment. And that one is September 28th. It starts at 1 p.m. Eastern time and 6 p.m. BST. And you can still grab a seat. Go to our website, amlrightsource.com, and you can register for it. And then we're putting one together on sanctions that will be in October, and that's October 26th. And registration for that will open on September 28th. And then lastly, 
Just a reminder, as we mentioned to you last week, John and I will be at the CAMS event in Las Vegas at the beginning of October. And if you're there, we'd love to meet you and hear what you like about This Week in AML and hear how we can make it more interesting for you. Yeah, just don't give me any grief about the Giants getting blown out by the Cowboys and we'll have a good time. (laughs) We'll ask the people from Dallas not to wear their jerseys and you'll feel better. That's right. (laughs) All right, Elliot, sounds good. Stay safe. We'll talk again soon. You too. Have a great week again. Bye-bye. 